morning. It's lovely to be with you. Uh, and those of you who are watching online today, a very good morning to you. I met someone just recently for the very first time who I'd only ever corresponded with um, via email. And at the end of this lovely conversation, this person said to me, you know, Katrina, it's been so nice to meet you. You're kind of really different to what I expected. For today, I kind of wondered whether or not you laughed, because when I read your emails, you came across as really serious. And I was kind of taken aback, like, I've just been told that I'm uptight. <laughs> Unbelievable. Me, uptight? It was just extraordinary. So, like, the chilled out, completely water off a duck's back kind of a gal that I am, I immediately got onto chat GPT to prove this person wrong. It turns out that that was a mistake. Because when I asked ChatGPT to name for me the characteristics of uptight people, it said this. Number one, uptight people, if I can make my clicker work. Oh, gosh, backwards. Uptight people don't make mistakes. Uptight people, <laughs> uptight people are excessive warriors. Yes, I admit it. I have a VIP pass to the what-if amusement park that lives inside of my head. I get unlimited access to the roller, the roller coaster of catastrophic thinking. I can visit the house of hypothetical disasters anytime I like, and I get to regularly stroll through the beautiful garden of overanalyzing. <laughs> Number two, uptight people are overly serious. Now, my motto is, why waste time laughing when you could discuss the hypothetical existence of knock-knock jokes? <laughs> Number three, uptight people have difficulty relaxing. Okay, you got me. I could turn walking around Blackburn late into an Olympic sport. <laughs> and finally, uptight people have perfectionistic tendencies. Now, I admit, if a job is worth doing, it is worth overdoing. <laughs> touché, chat GPT, touché. I've been thinking about all of this because it sounds kind of awkward to say this in front of you this morning, but I've been trying to cultivate more joy and wonder and laughter in my life. Basically, in my entirely uptight, overthinking kind of way, I've been on a quest to relax. I'm not talking about relaxing with scented candles or getting into your PJs and lying about on the couch. I'm not talking about relaxing on holiday. I have absolutely no problem doing any of those things. I'm talking about relaxing the whole of my life into God's hands. My faith was formed primarily in a context that was about striving. Striving to stay within certain parameters of the Christian faith and calling people out for stepping outside of those parameters. The focus was adherence to particular spiritual practices, making sure that you got your doctrinal beliefs absolutely right and didn't let any of those heretical beliefs which were actually all around infect you. We talked a lot about our relationship with Jesus, how Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friends. 
but somehow actually the striving got in the way of friendship. Friendship with Jesus felt for a long time like trying to be friends with the school principal, not someone that you really knew really liked you and actually really wanted to hang out with you, someone that you could be funny with and spontaneous and a little bit messy, someone that you could be quirky with. In my faith formation, Jesus just really wasn't someone you could relax a lot around. If you're with Jesus, you had to be your best self, your good self. So this morning, I want to talk about grace, how our understanding of the grace of God can either drive us towards striving or it can set us free to relax the whole of our lives into the hands of God. The grace that fuels the kind uh, of striving is a grace that says, look, grace is what God does for bad people in such a way that they know that they're bad. The short story of this kind of grace says, look, God was against you, but don't worry because God is really gracious and you're just really flat out lucky to be on his good side. The standout definition of this kind of grace goes something like this. Grace is God's undeserved favour towards us. God is great. Grace is God's undeserved favour to us. Did you notice how in that definition, how in that framing, the accent is on our unworthiness? But friends, that is the short version of grace. Anyone that tells you that story of grace that short version, I think, is actually distorting the true version of grace. Because the full version of grace starts with that definition, but goes so much more beyond it. Anne Lamott once said, I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but it does not leave us there. Grace meets us where we are, but it does not leave us there. This is the full story of grace, one that invades our space, but never leaves us in that space, because grace creates space. Grace is generative. Grace is creative. Grace is not just a gift from the creator God. Grace is God's loving new creation power at work within us. Dorothy Sayers once said that the artist does not see life as a problem to be solved, but as a medium for creation. You see, God's grace isn't primarily aimed at fixing us, of addressing our sin. God's grace is about transforming us and empowering us to live into the fullness of life, to truly thrive just as God always intended. So there is the short version of grace, grace focused on your unworthiness that will set you on a path of striving, striving to be worthy of God's undeserved favour. And there is the longer, more complete story of grace. It's focused on God's transforming power to meet you and to create a context for you to experience the fullness of life, to thrive. And this is the grace that truly sets us free to live our lives completely in God's hands. We see this grace at work in the life of, um, in, 
I've just put my slides in completely the wrong order this morning. I'm so sorry about that. I'm demonstrating just how vulnerable I can be. <laughs> this is the book of Jeremiah. Uh, if you have your Bible with, me, with you, you might like to turn with me. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, because we see some of this at work in Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah, verse 1, chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. We don't know exactly how old Jeremiah was when this word of the Lord came to him. Many scholars think he might have been as young as 19 years of age. It's interesting that when he came to decide what to do with his life, Jeremiah actually wasn't in need of any career advice. His family were the local holy men in the village of Anatoth. The priesthood was his family business. And like his father before him, Jeremiah was expected to don the robes and to tend the candles in the cute little church in his tiny little village. Instead of being a priest, an insider in the religious life of Israel during that time, God said, actually, no, Jeremiah, you are going to be an outsider. I am calling you to be a prophet, to speak whatever it is that I command you, someone to tell this lot what they really need to hear, to lift the lid on their corrupt and wasted lives. And not just a prophet in your little tiny local village chastising the gossiping women and the indolent men, not even a prophet to the nation speaking truth to the political powers in Jerusalem. I am calling you to be a prophet to the nations, plural, an international prophet. I want you to clock up your frequent flyer miles delivering messages from the creator of the universe to the rulers of this present day. I think it's worth acknowledging this point that this word from the Lord was kind of nuts. And even Jeremiah gives us two very plausible and I think eminently sensible reasons why this is nuts. The first problem is that Jeremiah doesn't exactly have the gift of the gap. He's an awkward adolescent with pink acne. What's he going to say to the king of Babylon when he can't go down the street to talk to the cute girl that lives down the road? The second problem is that Jeremiah is barely a man. He is utterly too young to be a prophet, and he knows it. 
I mean, we all know that prophets are old men with long grey beards and walking sticks and brown corduroy trousers who go around angrily shouting, repent for the kingdom of God is nigh. Who on earth is going to pay attention to an adolescent prophet in a hoodie and high tops? (laughs) Jeremiah's call reminds me of the numerous examples that we find in the Bible of God calling people to do things they were utterly ill-equipped and ill-prepared to do. It's almost like God goes out of his way to find the candidates least likely to do his work. Right, so I'm uh, looking for someone to lead the entirety of my people out of slavery in Egypt. I know. I'll choose Pharaoh's adopted son who happens to be a murderer, Moses. Gee, I need someone to defeat a giant and then go on to become Israel's most consequential king. I know. There's a shepherd boy. He was so insignificant that not even his own father thought he was worth parading in front of Samuel. Now, I need someone to save the whole of the Jewish people from Haman, the evil right-hand man of the king of Persia. I know, I'll choose an orphaned Jewish girl named Esther. Each of these choices, and so many others I know that you could name, look like utter madness, absolute utter madness, until we grasp verse 5 from our reading. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you saw the light of day, I had holy plans for you. Before. Before. It is such an ordinary, insignificant word, isn't it? Before Jeremiah knew God, God knew Jeremiah. Long before we'd even asked any questions about God, long before we even got interested in the subject of God, before it even crossed our minds that God might be important, God singled us out as a person of significance. And he was shaping us with his own hands. Before we were formed in the womb, God knew us. I'm not sure that I'll fully be able to ever grasp the mystery that we are known before we know. For is such a a short and an ordinary word that I think has the power within it to turn everything upside down. And friends, grace is a before story. Before you'd even heard the word grace, God was offering you grace. God's grace was with you before you even knew what God or grace was. Before you realised that you should probably try and knuckle down and pull your socks up a little bit more, God's grace had created a space for you to change. God's grace had cleared a pathway in the midst of the forest of your fears. God had found a way for his transforming power to penetrate the hardness of your heart. Before. Grace is a before story. 
There is the short story of grace focused only on your unworthiness, and it is a path that will hold you captive to a life of striving, striving to be worthy of God's undeserved favour. But there is the longer story of grace, the complete story of grace that focuses on God's transforming power to open up a new space inside of you, to create life and fullness of life and overflowing. And this story came into being before you did. This is the story that God was forming before you were even in your mother's womb. This is truly the grace that has the power to set us free, to have us relax the fullness of our lives into God's hands. On my mother's 70th birthday, she gave to everyone who attended her party a copy of her story that, unbeknownst to us, she'd been working on for the past two years. I read it and I confess that I was more than a little surprised. It wasn't the story of her whole life at that stage, all 70 years of it. It was the story of before, before she'd had children. And there was lots about her life that my brothers and I didn't know. Lots about the people who were before her that had a significant impact on her, like her parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, people that I had never met. And I realised through reading her story just how much our before is the invisible root system of now. Before is the deeper, invisible story that makes sense of what is visible on the surface. When I read my mum's story of before, the person she is today, right now, just made so much more sense to me. I had only really arrived near the middle of her story, and through reading her life before me, before I was even born, I came to understand her more deeply. Before I formed you in, your womb, in the womb, I knew you. And before you saw the light of day, I had holy plans for you. See, just like my mother, all of our befores have a profound impact on our lives. We enter a world we don't create. We grow into a life that's already largely provided for us. We arrive in the midst of a set of incredibly complex relationships where we exist along other people's wills and desires and the best of them and the worst of them. And all these things are already in operation before we've even been introduced into the mix. And if we zoom out a little further, our arrival in the arms of our parents or even their arrival in the arms of their parents isn't even the beginning. We are living in the middle of a story that was begun by God and will be completed by God. This is the story of grace, of God's grace bringing wholeness to all of creation. Grace is God offering to us, to each one of us, some of God's own wholeness in order that we might be made whole. This is why scripture says, for it is by grace you will be saved. Only God's wholeness has the power to put our broken and fragmented lives and the broken and divided world that we live in back together. 
before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you saw the light of day, I had holy plans for you. There is the short version of grace, and, there, and this version says it's all about your unworthiness. You are on a quest in life to become worthy. And that path will lead you to a life of striving. It begins with God saying, no. No to who you are. No, you're not good enough. No, you need to try harder. No, you've got to be better. And if you allow this story to take root in your life, you will forever be pursuing worthiness. But then there is the longer and the much more wonderful, the more complete story of grace, and it begins with God saying, yes. Yes, you are good. Yes, you are blessed. Yes, you are my beloved in whom I am so very well pleased. And its focus is on God's transforming power to create a new space of life and thriving in, in the midst of this one to meet you where you are, but to lead you so far beyond that. This is a before story. It came into being before you. This is the story God is forming across the whole of God's creation. And this, my friends, is the grace that sets us free to fully relax into the extraordinary, wonderful arms of God. Faith is about trusting God so much that our relationship with Jesus isn't like trying to be friends with the school principal. It's about sharing our life with someone who really, really wants to be with us, who delights in us. The fun, spontaneous parts of it, us, the quirky, unusual parts of us, who loves it all. God's grace is a before story. May you live in this story this week and all the days of your life. Let's pray. Loving God, we lift our eyes to the hills this morning and we ask, where does our help come from? Where does our life come from? Where is everything that is good? Where does it come from? And we know that it comes from you, for you are the maker of heaven and earth. So we thank you and we praise you for the gift of these extraordinary lives that you've given us. Thank you that before we were born, you knew us. And God, this morning as we come before you and stand in the risen presence of Jesus, we confess that there is, for many of us, an enormous gap between who we are and who you've created us to be. So we acknowledge the ways in which our desire to please you, to earn your favour, to be good enough, has actually led us to live a life of anxiousness and striving. We're only too aware of the disconnections between the life that we're living and the life that truly wants to live inside of us, the life that you've placed in our hearts through Jesus Christ. So like children, we come to you, God, and we simply say, please don't give up on us. 
please be patient. Please keep retelling us the story of your grace that came well before us. Please keep telling us of our own beginnings formed by your loving hands, born into your grace. And keep casting before us an extraordinary vision that you have for our lives. And keep inviting us into this wonderful, grace-filled space that you invite each and every one of your creation into. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to not be left where you find us. And we pray for the power that comes to us by your spirit to be led on by you. We surrender all of ourselves. We relax into your extraordinary and wonderful and loving presence this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.